Hi, everybody, and thanks so much for tuning in to another Paradox podcast. Today, I'm doing the next in a series of interviews to introduce you to our speakers who are coming to our Free Speech and Medicine Conference, October 28th to 30th, 2022, in beautiful Bedeck, Nova Scotia. You can get all the information online at freespeechandmedicine.com. We have a great roster of speakers. I'm, I feel absolutely blessed and um, just shocked, actually, at how uh, good the lineup is. We have Trish Wood, an award-winning journalist, host of the Trish Wood podcast. We have Bruce Party. We have Sean Watley. We have Jay Bhattacharya of Great Barrington Declaration fame. And I've missed several others in my haste to name so many. Today, I'm about to introduce you to Dr. Stanley Goldfarb. Dr. Goldfarb, as you'll hear, is a very brave and courageous gent who is really pushing back against what I can only call wokeness in medicine in the U.S. His new organization, DoNoHarmMedicine.org, is well worth checking out, and I recommend uh, either downloading or, or buying the paper copy of his book called Take Two Aspirin and Call Me By My Pronouns. Unfortunately, Dr. Goldfarb is our only uh, presenter at the conference who couldn't actually make it in person, so he will be presenting virtually, but he'll be taking questions at the end, and I'm sure his talk will be well worth hearing. I hope you enjoy our conversation, and I hope it gives you a sense of who Dr. Goldfarb is and what his organization is about. Hi, everybody, and welcome again to the Paradox Podcast. Uh, thanks a lot to Dr. Stanley Goldfarb. Um, coming to me, I assume from Pennsylvania. I didn't ask if you're somewhere special, but uh, anyway, I'm I'm sitting here looking over the water in Cape Breton, and he's in beautiful Pennsylvania, and uh, he's kindly agreed to chat with me uh, about uh, a few things and as a preview to our upcoming free speech and medicine conference. So thanks a lot, Dr. Goldfarb. Oh, it's great to be with you, Chris. Thank you. Um, so firstly, I just wanted to ask. The way I described it to somebody, you know, there's people who are willing to risk sticking their head above the parapet, um, you know, in the current cultural milieu. And you're somebody who not only lifted your head above the parapet, you jumped off the castle wall out into the barbarian hordes and started swinging your sword. So what is it about you that you were brave enough to really take on cancel culture in a frontal battle? Um, that's a good question. Well, first of all, I am retired. So unlike many people who are struggling with some of the issues that we're, we're, you and I have, are concerned with and we'll speak about, I guess, in a little bit, um, I don't have an economic um, you know, issue in, in my activities. And that, that makes it much less courageous, I think, than people that really are worried about their job. So I, I acknowledge that at first. I also don't care what people think about me. And I've always thought that not really caring what people think about you is an incredible strength if you have it. And I, you know, for this at this time in my life and over this particular issue, I really don't care what they think. I really believe that it's crucial that we make sure that discriminatory activity not invade healthcare. Which, and unfortunately, it is. And and I, I believe that with all my heart and soul. And I, and I think it's it's a righteous cause I, you know many with righteous causes commit terrible evils i understand that so it's important to keep a, a real perspective on things but i think this is a righteous cause and i think it's in patients interest and i just feel very strongly about that i was raised in a 
a field where you know great men led uh, the ethical discussions, and I took to heart what they told me, and I truly believe that that's the case. We need to treat every patient as an individual. The great Osler, the great Canadian physician, you know, in, embedded that in in people's consciousness here in the in the states, and I've taken that to heart. I was. Uh, at one point, I was president of the College of Physicians of Philadelphia, which is the oldest professional society in North America, actually started oh, well wow. before the, the beginning of the United States. And, uh, and uh, you know, fa some founding fathers, uh, Benjamin Rush was the first president of that uh, organization, for example. And, um, you know, the ethics of medicine mean a lot to me. And uh, so I don't, I don't see it as particularly brave again, don't have don't have to worry about the economic consequences of my actions. And if people decide not to speak to me anymore because I'm speaking my mind, well, so be it. Right on. Well, listen, that's actually very inspiring and uh, wonderful. And then it'll become, uh, for people who don't know you yet, it'll become more apparent what we're talking about as we go on with the rest of the conversation. Um, maybe just really quickly, your background, you were at University of Pennsylvania for many years, uh, as I understand it, you're a board certified physician and, and a teacher and were the head of uh, the Dean of Medical Education, is that correct? Well, Dean of, I was associate Dean in the med school for curriculum at Penn. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a professor there, now emeritus professor, although there were those who would like to take that away from me. <laughs> um, and I, I had a very long and active career in academic medicine and research uh, and in, and in uh, education and in administration as well. Uh, one time I was the department chair at Penn for almost three years of medicine. So I, you know, I've sort of been at the, had a chance to look at the leadership of academic medicine. And I, and I understood because of my activities in uh, the curriculum uh, at Penn that, um, how things work at the medical school level right so you're not you're not somebody who uh, doesn't know what what he's talking about for sure well sometimes i don't but uh, often i do right on uh maybe next i'll just ask you quickly you've written a book called take two aspirins and call me by my pronouns um when did that come out and what was your impetus for writing it right well it all started back in 2019 when i i wrote a letter to the wall street journal over the fact that they had an article that said that, oh, something like 40 medical schools had courses on climate change. And I wrote in because this had come up at Penn. And to me, we weren't teaching enough science and patient care. And to me, this kind of approach just really missed the point of medical education and you know, really was arguing more for creating physician activists than it was for creating healers. And, um, and I wrote a letter to the editor, the editor, said, I don't know anything about that article. I pointed out to him there really was such an article in the Wall Street Journal, but he said, why don't you write an op-ed? And I wrote an op-ed in the, in the, in back in September of 2019, just before the pandemic began. And the op-ed basically said, we're teaching a lot about these social issues in medical school. And I understood because of some recent experiences that the plan was to dramatically expand the teaching of social issues in medical school. And I said, this is this shouldn't go on. There, there should be some teaching of community activities. There'd be a little bit. And we had a, a fairly robust curriculum at Penn, but the plan was to expand it up dramatically. I was opposed to that. And I wrote this op-ed, which the Wall Street Journal entitled Take Two 
aspirins and call me by my pronouns. That was not my title, but mm -hmm. it created a firestorm. That was the first time I was canceled. Uh, and petitions were written and people went crazy. And really all I was arguing for was not having the medical school curriculum further expand social teaching. That was it. And that just was a firestorm. That led to the Wall Street Journal having an editorial two days later saying, I, I guess Goldfarb was right because <laughs> the response to this is, is so disproportionate to the information that was being uh, given in the op-ed. And, um, and that sort of turned me into a pariah at least at Penn, mm -hmm. uh, they even they even had to have a um, uh, a discussion with students whether it was safe for me to teach medical students. I had taught medical students for fifty years. Mm -hmm. I had won the main teaching award at Penn, as a matter of fact. And the the idea that I needed to that they needed to check to make sure it was safe to have students uh, learn from me uh, about renal physiology and about the way the kidney works uh, was just uh, that sort of was the, the, the hopping off of the whole mess. So uh, after that, um, I decided that um, I needed to write a book to just clarify my thinking and point out some of the other, uh, I think, negative, dangerous kinds of initiatives that were going on. And I wrote the book, it took me about a year or so. Um, again, the author, the uh, publisher decided that he liked the title that was on the um, op-ed originally. So that's why uh, the book has the same title. I, I probably would have liked a, a title, maybe something catchy, War and Peace, something like that. But, <laughs> uh, but it became this. And, and most people kind of think it's funny, but it, again, it evokes a lot of anger because these are, uh, topics you just can't even discuss the issue about gendering and so on mm -hmm. after that I, i'll sort of answer your next question about why what i what happened next and what happened next was it, it the question was posed to me by some some friends and some acquaintances well what are you going to do about all this you're just going to write about it and that's the end of it and that led to a, a discussion with some folks that were very active in the education space fighting back against critical race theory being taught in, in uh, elementary schools and secondary schools and even colleges. And uh, they pointed out, you know, the model here is to have sort of an activist group that can push back against these issues. And why don't you consider starting something in uh, healthcare? So that's why we started Do No Harm, uh, which is our organization that, that has been fairly active now in the space and we can talk about you know some of the activities right that and uh, i'll just mention to people is do no harm medicine.org uh this is how um this is how i heard about you i heard you interviewed and i thought wow this is perfect it's so much uh overlap with <clears throat> why you started to do no harm medicine and why we started free speech and medicine it's the same thing it's this stifling of, of debate and this idea that there's only one right answer and you will receive it from above and repeat it and you will shut your mouth even if you disagree with it. It's just, I think it's um, not good for um, open debate and inquiry and not, not safe for patients. But I agree with you in the, in the end, I don't think it's going to produce a better medical profession that serves the patients better. But uh, so you, you started doing no harm medicine and uh, tell us a little more about it and how's it going? Well, it's going pretty well. Uh, we've been lucky. We've had very, very strong financial support from some foundations 
that are interested in causes like the one we're taking on. And our main purpose is to fight against discrimination in healthcare, as I mentioned in the, in the beginning. Um, we have uh, over 2,000 members now who have joined us. We started in March of this year, um, and we've launched uh, two lawsuits and, uh, and also caused a number of, of headaches for organizations that we think have really gone down the path of, of fostering uh, discriminatory practices. So uh, I'll mention a couple of the lawsuits that uh, mm. the uh, listeners might be interested in. The first one we launched was against the federal government. We decided to you know, go big rather than go home. And um, the reason we sued the US government was because back at the end of last year in the Medicare program, you know, our public health program in the United States for senior citizens, um, they issue rules every year about changes in the program. And they issued a rule in a quality improvement program that they have for primary care physicians mostly that said that if physicians create an anti-racism protocol in their practice, they could qualify for an incremental bonus when they see Medicare patients. So they would get a, a 10 or 15% increase tacked on to the whatever fees that they charge Medicare if they have such programs. Now, the problem is anti-racism, which sounds like a, a you know, wonderful thing. Who isn't against racism? But in fact, it's, it implies something quite different. It implies the creation of a racist program within, in this case, medical practices in order to uh, uh, deal with what's felt to be uh, past uh, discriminatory practices that led to poor outcomes in, in the case for minorities in the United States. And the idea is that the only way you can make up for these kinds of past problems is to create new problems. Now, the new problems would be ones that would hurt non-minority people. They would not benefit from a program that would be present for another group simply based on skin color. Wouldn't be based on economic factors. It wouldn't be based on you know, medical issues. It, it, would, it would simply be based on racial issues. And, uh, and we objected to this because the United States in the 1960s passed a, a law that said you can't discriminate based on race. Uh, the head of the US Supreme Court famously said the best way to stop discriminating on race is to stop discriminating on race. And um, so we sued the government because inevitably these kinds of practices are gonna harm one group of people and to the benefit of another group of people. Mm -hmm. I think if you come up with a, a, a quality improvement program in your practice, it ought to apply to every patient that's that's it's relevant to based on their medical problems mm -hmm. uh, and not simply to one group of patients because of their skin color. So that lawsuit is underway. It's It's been joined by eight states in the United States. Eight states uh, attorney generals decided to to um, support our lawsuit, which is in federal court. It, the, the plaintiff is a physician in Kentucky who is a member of the Kentucky state legislature and also a practicing physician and another physician in Mississippi who is supporting it because you have to have standing in the United States at right. least to sue anyone. You need to show that you're, you've been injured. And these physicians said they didn't want to pursue discriminatory practices. They were being injured by this new rule. So that's mm -hmm. one thing that we did. Yeah. And maybe I'll just pause there and say, it's interesting to me, listen to you. It really highlights to me the difference between the Martin Luther King uh, view of, of uh, race 
relations and, and versus the you know the modern Ibram, Ibram X Kendi view and you know King's famous uh, speech where he said only only love can drive away hate only light can drive away the darkness and it was this positive vision about us all going forward together and doing better and loving each other for what we are and Kendi has brought things full circle to saying uh, you know the only cure for past discrimination is present discrimination the only cure for future discrimination or for present discrimination is future discrimination basically uh it's sort of the eye for an eye uh version but the eye for an eye is not based on what you did it's based on your skin color and it just to me it's incredibly negative incredibly destructive and it's a recipe for more and more uh conflict going forward going forward and also it just i, I won't belabor this but um to me, there's this concept of horseshoe politics that the further you go to one end of the political spectrum, you end up, actually end up just looping back near the other. And, you know, the, the the crazy white supremacists who say everything you can know about somebody, you can know by looking at their skin color, you can tell whether somebody's better or worse or done by what they deserve, what they don't deserve based on their skin color. When you go to the hard Ibram X. Kendi, you end up with the same ideas that we can judge people based on their skin color and we can get, grant people certain privileges and, and assume things about them based on their skin color. It's just, I find it's a very negative uh, view. Not, not, it, it's not a good way to produce a, 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 a very functional society in my mind anyway. Yeah, exactly. You know, we've, we've said the same words when we explain our, our rationale for existence. So you, you summed it up beautifully. Thank you. And anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. You were going to tell us about another uh, ongoing yeah. lawsuit. So the other thing that we found now, our organization has been, gotten a huge number of tips from various uh, individuals at health systems and in universities, at medical schools, uh, and in private practices even, of they've observed things that they felt represented discriminatory practices. And one thing we, we found that has led us to a eventual lawsuit is a number of scholarship programs and fellowship programs in the United States that specifically excluded whites and often whites and Asians from participating. And the idea is, you know, to, to sort of bring the, the black and, and the Hispanic population to have a higher representation in various activities, the way you need to do that is to exclude white people and Asians from participating in a program. So one journal that we have had some interactions with was Health Affairs. Now, Health Affairs is been considered the Bible of health policy, and it considers itself that way. And health affairs actually um, uh, went after us because we pointed out that they have uh, actively written about the fact that they were going to push so hard for minority involvement in their journal that they would even uh, find out the the race of authors of articles, and and they would identify the race of individuals that they would call upon to review articles and that that would be a factor in their decision, perhaps not the decision to publish, but certainly the decision to have reviewers of articles. And we called them on this. They were very upset about it and uh, you know, sort of pushed back, uh, wrote about us. And then we, went, <laughs> then we went ahead and actually put an ad in, in health affairs, which they accepted the ad basically was for do no harm. And it said, if you've seen discrimination in healthcare, please let us know. After they accepted the ad, they wrote an op-ed about how they, why they accepted the ad, how terrible we were, and that um, 
you know, they took our money for the ad and they were sort of uh, thumbing their noses at us. Well, it turns out that health affairs itself was uh, has been involved in discriminatory practices. And we sued them over the fact that they had a fellowship program, which they invited young uh, students to apply for, which would give them a year or so, I forget the exact details of the program, in at health affairs, where an individual would learn about health policy, would learn about editing journals, would learn about accepting and reviewing articles, and so on, would have a stipend for this, and whites and Asians need not apply. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we sued them on this. And the reason they we sued them on this is that we had a student that wanted to apply for this fellowship was unable to. And the reason that they fall under the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was because their sponsor is Project Hope, which accepts millions of dollars from the federal government to support its activity. So once you take money from the federal government, you have to abide by United States laws. So that lawsuit is underway um, and there are negotiations going on now. They'd like to uh, have us go away, as you can imagine, but, uh, but not. The third lawsuit that we filed, I, I mentioned this one, is is against. We took on a, a a foe that really doesn't have much clout, but and we feel badly about this. We're suing Pfizer, the drug company, <laughs> uh, because Pfizer also has a program, uh, a fellowship program, which is an incredible program. It's for employees of Pfizer, and if they apply for it, um, they can um, they can get uh, a tremendous career boost. They get a promotion, they get increased pay, they get uh, take a master's degree. Um, they have all, all sorts of positive components. And again, white people need not apply. This is purely for uh, minority individuals. And again, Pfizer, I believe, takes a fair amount of money from the federal government. So that lawsuit is underway and uh, Pfizer uh, tends to fight us. And uh, so, um, so that's one sort of approach that we've taken that I think uh, represents one tool in a in a toolbox of pushing back. We need organizations to understand that if they uh, pursue these sorts of uh, activities that are contravened by federal law in this country, at least that, you know, they're going to be called on it. The other the last thing we've done, although they're not lawsuits, we've written many, many letters to the Office of Civil Rights complaining about um, uh, uh, scholarship programs that have been put in place by a number of medical schools associated with hospitals uh, in order to try to attract uh, minority students to their training programs, to their residency programs. What they've done is they've, they've again, said, we'll give you money to come here, visit our our program, spend some time at our institution. We'll give you a stipend. We'll pay your travel. White students need not apply. And again, these are illegal. So we've called them on it. The University of Florida recently agreed that, in fact, that was the case, that their program was illegal. And they have uh, rescinded this uh, requirement that you have a specific skin color in order to be eligible for this program and that all students would be eligible. They may pick only black students. I guess that that's their right to pick whom they want, but they cannot um, they cannot discriminate on the front end of these programs. So. I guess we've become more than an irritant. I mean, less than a, a dagger, I guess, for, for what goes on, but we've done on that. And the other thing that we've been able to do is we've had, I think, pretty effective um, 
traction with writing op-eds and, and, and thought pieces about this problem and pushing back and being active on social media as, as much as we can. We have some professional um, organizations that have helped us uh, accomplish that. So I think we've been pretty effective in, for, in identifying issues and, and sort of acting on them, which I, you know, I think there are a number of people like yourself and other organizations. There's, um, there's FIRE in the United States, mm -hmm. FAIR in Medicine in the United States, another organization that's doing very good work uh, to alert the public about these issues. But I think our, our kind of unique position is the resources to go ahead and really use um, the legal system to sort of push back. And mm -hmm. the last thing I'll mention in terms of what our kind of approach is, our approach is also going to be legislative. So mm -hmm. a lot of American medicine is very much dependent on government, both federal and state government support and there are states in which the uh, the political leadership of the states are, are not that um, are not that interested in seeing these discriminatory practices be put into place. So medical schools in in some states that are governed by uh, political uh, activity politicians that that are favorable to our viewpoint are going to have to. Uh, uh, respond to their state legislatures, and we're suggesting model legislation, for example, um, of how to um, uh, create what we think is a more fair system. For example, making sure that the um, the admission policies of medical schools are made public. The public should know when uh, there are uh, discriminatory programs that are put in place to favor one group of individuals over another simply based on skin color. Um, and uh, schools don't make that public, but we're looking at legislation that will force them to do that if they accept state money. Um, so, so there are a number of such kinds of programs. So also in two states in the United States, physicians are forced to take uh, implicit bias training if they are to uh, get licensure renewals. And this is the sort of thing that states have under their control. The, the running of medical activities is at a state level here. And um, we're looking very hard at uh, laws that would prevent these kinds of uh, uh, litmus tests or uh, requirements that uh, really are, uh, are just wrong because they're based on nonsense. They're based on some idea that the disparities between minority groups and other groups in this country are simply based on physician bias which is absurd and there's no real evidence for that, but that's what's, you know, parroted all the time. And uh, that has led them to suggest these implicit bias training programs, which are just a waste of time, um, infuriate a lot of physicians who don't believe that they're biased. And you know, the truth is even if someone has some unconscious biases, which God knows may exist, that doesn't mean that they act on them. And that doesn't mean that it, it's a cause of anybody's poor health outcomes. So um, the whole thing is just a, a big house of cards, but it's being pushed by huge, uh, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion enterprises. Some of our schools have over, uh, over 140 individuals responsible for their diversity programs, which include creating these kinds of discriminatory practices in, in healthcare. So those are some of the activities that we've been about. And I think that's that's what I 
I want to talk about when it comes time for your conference uh, in October. And uh, because uh, I think that, you know, it, it serves as a model for how one can go forward and push back because that, that's the next, the next point. Now we've identified, many organizations have identified the problem. Now we need to do something about it. Yeah. Well, that's, that's what it really attracted me to your organization when I heard about you and heard you speak on a podcast was that uh, you not only uh, uh, talk about the problems, you know, which is obviously the first step, we need to be able to talk about things freely, but uh, beyond that, then how do we actually fight it? I'll, I'll put in a little plug here. Some of the things we talked about might, might be a little esoteric to some people. Um, and, and there's some great, some great references. I, I highly recommend uh, cynical theories by uh, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose, which is really good primer on postmodernism and how we got into this weird space that we find ourselves in where, you know, biological males are winning NCAA women's swimming finals. Uh, and also John McWhorter's new book. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's uh, if uh, people haven't read that, um, the the name escapes me, but um, his woke new religion. A woke religion. It's yes. really wonderful, and it's safe to recommend to your friends who might be on the other side of the political spectrum because Dr. McWhorter is actually black, so he has that that cred where he can say these things very freely and uh, you know by not be accused of being a racist by by most people anyway so uh those are well worth uh, well worth reading about um so i'll uh, we'll sort of wrap things up but i i want to say again thanks a lot for what you're doing i know you don't feel brave but uh many people wouldn't suffer the slings and arrows that you've suffered <laughs> even though they might really believe in your cause and and be completely behind you but they wouldn't be a able or willing to put themselves out there so you know many of us really do appreciate it um, like i say i think there's a lot of overlap with what you're about and what i saw free speech and medicine as being about is just about you know just being able to speak about this craziness in logical ways without fear of of blowback and job loss and all these things that seem to be happening to people who are who are trying to speak the truth so um again thanks very very much for what you do thanks for agreeing to speak at our upcoming conference well i think this conference is really important i think I, i'm really eager to hear about what's going on in in canada and uh in regards to this you know we only hear about these things peripherally in, in the states everybody worries about their own little worlds and um, i suspect this is going to turn out to be an international problem not just in the in north america but also in in Europe, um, you know, they've been struggling with the gender issues there and the, and the gen transgender issues, particularly in children in, in the European countries. And I think these issues are, are very widespread and the time has come for people of goodwill to sort of step up and say, let's, let's just not go back to the dark ages, which is almost where they're dragging us, mm -hmm. as you said before. I agree. And just, just so you know, to make, maybe to make you feel a little better, we're a lot further along this path in Canada. It's much worse with our more socialized medical system. Uh, so as bad as things might be in the U.S., I think we're worse in the U in, in Canada. Um, someday we can compare notes over uh, over a round of golf and we can decide which country's worse. But we we certainly have <laughs> all your problems and then some. So no, the countries uh, are wonderful. There, there's a lot of hope. I'm not. I, you know, I just think uh, the right people. These kinds of right ideas need to be put forth and, and, and they need to be, and the wrong ideas need to be countered. Yeah. Right on. Well, that's a, a positive note to end on. So listen, th thanks very much. I appreciate it. Thank you, Chris.